0: just got back from arkansas i played a festival in little rock it's called the holiday hangout i got to see a lot of old friends call some people that i've had on this show before i met a lot of new friends it was a really good time and best of all is a lot of folks came up to me and said they listened to this show and said they enjoy it and that's always great i love hearing from people to listen to the show the next day i went up to conway arkansas and I played at an auto garage. It was a party in an auto garage. It's the first time I've ever done that. And I believe it was auto body repair, repair type thing. It was the first time I ever done that and it was actually really really nice and fun. And as we were hanging out and talking, the guys that were putting on the party told me that somewhere close by was the grave of Clifton Clower. And I had no idea that Clifton Clower was a real person. You guys might remember the song Wolverton Mountain that uh, Claude King had a big hit with back in the early 60s. Merle Kilgore wrote it. I guess Clifton Clower was a real guy who had a beautiful daughter up on top of the mountain. So I decided the next day, before I headed back to Nashville, I'd drive on up. And I did. I drove on up to the top of uh, Wolverton Mountain, and I visited his grave. And the last two or three miles was a dirt road, so it was quite an adventure getting up there. And I felt like I was on private property. And it was a little uneasy. And I I could see where a lot of guys probably got a little bit frightened when they got up there and they were ready for old Clifton to come out and start shooting at them. But anyway, it feels good to be back home. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Don Schlitz. Don is a singer and a songwriter, and you might know him from writing songs like The Gambler, Forever and Ever, Amen, On the Other Hand, and a ton of others. But you can find out everything you need to know about Don at donschlitz.com. Don's written or co-written so many hit songs that uh, it would take me forever to sit here and list all of them. So I'll just say that he's the only songwriter to win ASCAP's Country Songwriter of the Year Award four years in a row. He's won three CMA Song of the Year Awards. He's won two ACM Song of the Year Awards. He's won a couple Grammys, Grammys. He's won a ton of other awards. And he's a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Don was nice enough to come over to my house and share some stories with me. And we talked forever. I mean, we talked for a long time. Really good guy who I really enjoyed being around. But we had so much stuff to cover that I I decided that um, this show would make up the area between him moving to Nashville and The Gambler becoming a huge hit. And we have so much other stuff that I'm sure somewhere down the road we'll do a part two. But I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Don Schlitz.
1: When I was in maybe the ninth grade, I went to the Durham High School talent show, and I saw my second cousin, who I did not know well, but I sort of idolized a bit, stand up in front of everybody with uh, his guitar at the talent show and sang Catch the Wind. Yeah, the Donovan song. He was really cool. I'm not sure what else he sang, but he was really cool. His name was Tommy House. This is we all know him as Tom House. That when Woodstock came around, I'd, I'd we'd go to the YMCA, and I knew his, his younger brother Gary much better. Uh, we'd all go to the YMCA and shoot pool and play basketball. He's really good. Uh, and but I really thought, okay, that's really cool. What he's doing is really cool. I, I, I like that. Tom and and some other, the guys that were a little bit older than me were going to Woodstock and he needed some money to go to Woodstock. I was working at the either Northgate or the Rialto Theater, one of those great one, one screen movie houses at the time. And, uh, it was the summertime and I spent my entire summer and I've been 85 or 90 bucks that I'd saved up and bought the LG one guitar from Tom house. And that was my guitar. I remember coming in and having to explain to my dad that I spent my summer money on a guitar, and I was met with a rousing support of silence. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's how I got that guitar. Uh, and that's the guitar I came to town with. And my boss guy named Fred Crumpton. Uh, I didn't show up for work one morning, he came over to my, my uh, house on Clarendon. He sat with me on the front porch and said that if he didn't have any kids and if he wasn't married... And, and have your responsibilities, he'd, he'd go to Nashville. So uh, I had about $80 in cash. I had a uh, Gibson LG1 guitar and I got a, a bus ticket one way for Nashville. I, I think I got here on a Good Friday of uh, 1973. There was a, a friend of mine from high school. Who was a year ahead of me, named Dennis Bryan, who was a student at Vanderbilt. And Dennis had always said, Well, if you're ever in Nashville, you know, look me up. And I was like, Oh, sure, right. So I get off the bus station downtown and I've got my duffel bag and my guitar. And it wasn't one of those light cases like we have now, it was a good old heavy case. And I walk from downtown up to Vanderbilt and I, I had arrived at about five in the morning. And I am walking around looking for any place to go in, and I had long hair and looked like I didn't belong, because I didn't, and uh, I finally found which dorm Dennis lived in, and it was the first co-ed dorm uh, on Vanderbilt's campus, and I located it, and I walked up to it, and there was a young lady who was getting home from a sort of a late date, I guess, and she, I said, Dennis Bryan lived here. Oh, yeah, second floor, so I went up to the second floor in the commons room, and when he came out at about nine o'clock to get his orange juice out of the commons refrigerator. he looked up and had a big old smile up and face, "Hey, and I <laughs> fell asleep there and i uh and I was in Nashville suddenly. I applied for a job at uh Vanderbilt as a computer operator, and went up this street I had to have a place to live. I couldn't live there, of course. there was a place called the Parthenon Tourist Home, and it was up uh, next to a uh corner called Bishop's Corner. Uh, that Tim Bishop had a restaurant and a hair hair salon. And there was this bizarre place had a big neon sign in front of it a couple of blocks up from Centennial Park said Parthenon Tourist Home. And it was $3 a night. And that was going to eat into my budget pretty well. But I went in and got a, had to pay a week in advance. So it was $21. I got a loaf of bread and some jelly. And I found out immediately that the only writer's Night type situation to pass the hat thing was at Bishop's Corner, so I was in great proximity there. I was there for a couple of days, and, and and I realized immediately that I I had no business standing on the little stage in the corner because I think the other people that were getting to town about the same time were uh, Guy Clark and you know uh, Rodney Crowell and and some some people that that had been had, were from Texas and they knew how to stand up in front of people and play I, and I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't know really how to pass the hat and ask for money or felt deserving and certainly wasn't. And uh, it was the summer of the Watergate hearings were going on. And the uh, people that owned the Parthenon Tourist Home were the Pig Sisters, P-I-double-G, seriously. And they would sit out at the earliest part of the morning as the news was coming on one of the three stations. And I'm lying there trying to figure out what in the heck I'm going to do with my life on this bed that was so soft that the middle of it pretty much hit the floor, old iron bed. And Dennis and a, a friend, Rob, came up, and they looked around, and they saw me and said, okay, get your stuff together. And they took me back to their dorm, found an empty room in the basement, a storage room, found a mattress, an old mattress. There were no sheets. I used my duffel bag for my pillow, had my guitar next to me. And for the last month until school let out, that dorm kind of adopted me and took care of me and let me hang out and stay there. And by the end of the school term, uh, a job had come through at the Vanderbilt Computer Center. And I, by the end of the summer, I was the all-night computer operator working by myself from 11 at night until 7 in the morning. I had a job, and I was 20 years old, and I was in Nashville. So one day I get a uh, postcard, and it's from Tom Tom House saying, uh, "I'll be out there on Thursday." <laughs> so okay, so I went downtown and found a I found a place to live, and it was 1018 17th Avenue South. This was a total slum, $89 a month. So I had a, now I've got an apartment. And now I've got Tommy's my roommate, and he comes out. And then uh, my friend Ben Reynolds comes out and, and hangs out for the summer. And suddenly we're sitting there at 10, 18, 17. There's only one place that you can really go before we get to. I'd play that Bishop's Corner, and then I stopped playing. Yeah. Because I knew that I wasn't ready to do that. I didn't really have a pure group, a support group. But one night, I think Tom had already uh, moved out. He was writing great songs even then, and just totally on his his path. become He was a true poet, and is a true poet. Nobody was in our apartment but me, and there were some songwriters who had moved in next door. And I had this uh, alarm clock, and evidently I had set it, and it went off, and I wasn't there to turn it off. And I had set it so it would wake me up, and it was really loud, so everybody in the building could hear it. The next morning at seven thirty or eight when I'm walking home cutting through everybody's yards on scaret and all the way over to the seventeenth, these guys were standing in the yard going like, "Okay, here you are <laughs> and uh, they, I'm like, "Oh my you yeah, I can't believe that I, I'm so sorry and they became my best friends. got him Tom Benjamin, uh, Hugh Moffat, and Gil Francis were uh, sharing that that had moved into that apartment I think Hugh had stopped studying physics in Houston, and Tom had left law school, and I think Gil was just an old blues guy. They all—they became my my group. I and mean, a lot of people went through that apartment uh, that they had. Uh, I think David Olney probably crashed there. And uh, the legend in my mind has has the towns came through, and and Steve Earl, and and, uh, and which is Steve Runkle, and a lot of you know, my heroes but we were all supportive of each other but some started meeting folks you know uh by by chance at the time and there was a place called Frankenstein, and it was a a rathskeller i think they're called and it was down on west end they had a writer's night on monday night and i would go down to uh there and everybody get to play three songs got him sam Weedman was running running it uh, and We'd all get to play our three songs. Sign up for the next week and play three songs. And I had to play early because I had to be at work at eleven at at Vanderbilt. I remember there were a couple guys that were students at Vanderbilt that would come down and listen to us, and they would you know, walk with me back up to campus. We got b be pals. Uh, they were they were real students, and but they were very interested in music. Uh, interestingly enough, those two people were Ken Levitan, uh, who's uh, head of has Vector Management, one of the great music managers, and. In, in the business, and Steve Buchanan, who runs the uh, Grand Ole Opry, and the you know the executive producer of the Nashville show. And these were the two guys I I met right then. You know, I went to a record store uh, over on Twenty First. There was a record store, and uh, I'm saying talking to the guy selling vinyl, and I'm trying to figure out if I can spend three bucks on a record back when they were new. Remember, and guy says, well, where are you from? In Durham, North Carolina. Oh, my uncle's from Durham, North Carolina. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, his name is Hugo Germino. I said, like, well, Germino? There's like a, a Germ- no, he said his name was his last name was Germino. I said, well, there's a Germino that was a sports writer in, in, for the Durham Morning Herald named Hugo Germino. He said, that's my uncle. I said, wow. He went to school with my mom. And so it was Mark Germino. So that's how Mark and I met. And we just a whole group of people. We were hanging out. It was bad. It was a small scene. When you uh, think about how many people are in Nashville now, and how many songwriters are in Nashville now, almost on any given block, you can find the number of songwriters. And that was the total population of songwriters at the time. Uh, in back, this is 73, 74,
0: 75. I hear stories of it's so much easier just to walk into someone's office. And
1: The very first meeting I ever went to, I looked up in the phone books. I figured you had to go into a company. So I looked up names of anybody that I could, of a name I recognized. And and the one that I recognized was the steel player from Bob Dylan's John Wesley Harding album. Was a guy named Pete Drake. And I saw there was a Pete Drake music. So I went to Pete Drake music and uh, knocked on the door and they sent me upstairs to, with my guitar. And there was a guy named Buzz Rabin. And it was my very first meeting. I played Buzz three or four songs. And he said, he said well, let me, you know, I don't really, I've only been here like three days. And he said, let me make a phone call for you. So he called, I hear him talking to some guy. And he says, he hands me a piece of paper, says go to this place, you know, in a couple of days they'll be expecting you. So I'm thinking, I'm everybody's big break here, right? So I go over to this place, and I didn't recognize the name of the company. The lady at the front, the gatekeeper, the lady at the front desk yells back, "Is anybody listening to songs? And this guy's guy, guy with curly hair and wire rim glasses, comes out and says, "Oh, I, I'm doing that. I've got. I know this." And uh, so I go back into his. He's got an office, and I start playing him these songs I've got. This is you know '73, early '73. After I've been here like a month and a half, and I play a song. Well, let me hear another. Let me. Oh, that's good. Let me hear another. Let me. I'm going to play these. You know, play about. and I'm thinking I'm this guy's big break. By this time, I've got my confidence up. You know. And I didn't look like a lot of people did in Nashville. I had hair you know halfway down my back and a big beard, and you know I had a lot of hotspot, I guess you'd say, just just you know onions to be sitting there doing that <laughs> um, delusions of grandeur and after a while, the guy says, "Well, I like some of these songs. We should go in and, and you know record some of these, you know, just do a little demo. He says, "I want to show you what I'm doing." And he takes me to this other room that's got like, you know, a couple record players and a bunch of records. And he says, This is a, a small label. It's a friend of mine. It's a B side. And he pulls out this, uh, uh, it's a single. So I knew it wasn't that important because it wasn't on an album, you know, because I thought it had to be on an album to be important at the time. So he puts on the B side and there's a label I didn't recognize. Well, the label was JMI Records. The friend of his who was singing was a guy named Don Williams and the song was Amanda. Uh so the person I'd been singing those songs to was Bob McDill. Uh and I'm sitting there going like, Whoa. okay. I don't really know how to do this. I didn't think I didn't, I probably wasn't smart enough to say I don't know how to do this yet. And I don't know if I'll ever know how to do what So for the first few years and Buzz Raven was very kind to me. He he would he would still see me um, and he wrote of Blues for Ringo Starr. Buzz went on to do that. And MacDill uh, was really for about three years or so the only person that would see me in town that I could go in and, and really play songs for and and uh, mentor me and encourage me.
0: Uh, he had a lot of hits, didn't he? Bob B- MacDill was,
1: was probably the most successful of what we would call a cubicle writer, of a nine-to-five writer. He treated it like a nine-to-five. God, this guy that wrote Good Old Boys Like Me, which might be the best country song uh, that I can I can think of. Uh, and all these songs that, uh, he, he didn't tell me that he had the A side of that B side that he had a man on. It was called Come Early Morning. And that was the number one song in the country at the time. He didn't say that. Uh, McDill is an incredibly modest person uh, who was a real hardworking, go to keep bankers hours, go to an office working for Jack Clement, of course, and Clement had his, I guess, his group of writers that he had, had, had found. Alan Reynolds is over there, and, of course, Don Williams, and these got Wayland Holyfield ended up over there at some point, point. just, you know, absolutely great country. They, they were a country town up. One day, I was constantly uh, watching my my friends get either a record deal or a cut, or you had a number one record. Or Tom Benjamin got a record deal with RCA, and I was getting nothing. Nothing was happening, and I was would threaten <laughs> as if it was a threat that well I got to get rid of this. I got to go do something else. I got to figure out what to do with my life. I still I'm still walking around broken hearted and trying to write songs and working. You know. 48, 56 hours a week. And they had an, an IBM Selectric typewriter at, uh, at Vanderbilt. And we had an erasable tape. So I'd write long letters to my parents. And I'd write song after song after song every night because these programs that I was running with the punch cards took a long time to run. So I had a lot of time. I was getting a lot of practice in rhyming and metering. And that was a great experience. And I was getting a lot of practice being uh, having my blinders on and not being distracted by having a uh, family or a real life, really. Uh, it was just me. I'd go see MacDill, and every once in a while I would say, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to go back to Durham. you know. I'm going to go back to what I know, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I just wanted to make a threat to somebody, and he said, well, you could do that. You could do that, but you'll never know, and I'd be halfway toward the world Never know what? Well, you'll never know if, if you could have made it or not. I was like, "Damn, you know, okay. And I'd keep trying. One day I, I, I went in and I hadn't really been writing much of anything. And he said, you know, he said how many songs are you writing a year? I said, I don't know, 10. He said, all from inspiration. I said, yeah. He said, okay. Well, your job is to write those 10, which you're going to get anyway, and to find a way to write 40 more that can get on the radio. And if I'm sitting there writing a song every night, you know, anyway, I think, well, maybe, maybe I can make some of these good. Um, and just studying the process. And you know, I didn't realize I was studying the process and studying the form of what these songs were all the time. So that if an idea ever did hit, it just, it just happened and it would flow through very fast. Uh, and McDill one day, when I was in one of these dry periods, showed me an open tuning on guitar. I didn't have my guitar with me, but I, I walked home and I wasn't playing the guitar like a marching band walking down uh, from over on 16th all the way to uh, Fairfax, another part of Fairfax <laughs> I was living on, a fish and sea apartment. And I started writing this song. I, I had this drone of the guitar going in my head and I started making up these this story from nowhere, you know, one line then led to another line, another line, and kept remembering it and singing it to myself. And I got home and I had an Elsie Smith typewriter that had been my dad's who had passed away a couple of years before and I was a good typist this is not an electric typewriter but I sat down and I typed it all out, and I played it all I, I tuned my guitar to that open tuning and it just you know three chords and, oh this is good as best I can recall uh, Tom House who I was still of course hanging out with uh, came by and I played it for him I, I had everything and Didn't have a last, the last verse. It kind of ended after at the chorus. He he thought he said that's that that could be something. (laughs) He told me later he thought it could have been cool, but I had no idea uh, how it was going to end. I thought it was going to take five more verses. I wrote all these variations, Uh, and I went to a guy who I'd met in this circle with uh, with Bob McDill, named Jim Rushing, who was a, a, a great. Um very focused poet, songwriter. And he invited me over to his house one night and to play some songs. And I took my my stack of papers. I played him song after song after song after song. And it was always, well, that's, that's good. What else you got? What else you got? What else you got? What else you got? I got to this last well, I'm I'm out. I've got this one really long piece and it's really linear and I don't know what happens with it. I have no idea how it's gonna go. We'll play it. And I played him what I had, and he said, That's the one you ought to finish. And I spent about six weeks writing the last, you know, finally, uh, instead of writing five verses, did uh, what I've come to call the Guy de Mapecin ending, which is just, okay, you know, respect the listener, let the listener decide. You've made it vague enough up to this point. Uh, Follow your songwriting heroes and let it be listened to and heard as opposed to too much on the nose. And that was the end And so I I started playing that out, and uh, then Jim started playing it out. Uh, then I think Hugh started playing it out, and people started, you know, playing around with it. And, and Jim introduced me to this guy named Paul Kraft, who had a publishing company. And Paul Kraft took me over to Audie Ashworth, who was his publishing partner, and they liked the song. Paul started playing it out. These are you know all great songwriters. You know Paul Kraft wrote Brother Jukebox, Keep Me From Blowing Away. Recently we lost him. He was he dropped Keep Me Jesus and. Hank Williams, you wrote my life. These are great, great songwriters. So, Audie had produced a guy named JJ Kale. And Audie cut and, and Paul cut a demo on me of The Gambler. And uh, so, Audie started pitching it. And he couldn't get anybody to bite on it. It was four minutes and three seconds long. And uh, it was just wrong. This is a song that McDill had passed on. You know, everybody had, everybody had passed on. And I'm still working at Vanderbilt. Uh, so Audie decides to put it out on his own and print it up, you know, a couple hundred forty-fives and send them to radio stations. He'd been a big-time DJ in Nashville. Audie sends it out. Actually, on the all those uh, copies he had printed out, he had me write all the label copy by hand on all of them, and it was somewhat extensive. Two hundred copies. Yeah, and on the other side, and I had to write, you know, like a copyright such and such, nineteen seventy-eight by Autogram Music. You know, two point. PO box two two three six or whatever you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting there with writer's cramp, and it was a, it was one of those things that they would look at me and say, "Good for you, that's good for you." <laughs> and I guess it was, you know, cause I because uh, I eventually he would he took me out, had me open for JJ a few times. First couple times with just one guitar, and that was about as hard a thing to do as you could ever do. Nobody knew what JJ Kale looked like for one thing. So when I came off the stage with my horrible 20 minutes or such as it was folk singer 20 minutes people were going like why didn't you play c- cocaine dude like <laughs> uh that's the other guy
0: <laughs> it actually happened to you on so uh did you, but, did you get to interact with him at all with, with JJ Kil?
1: not no but he was very very nice and it, he he always would smile and, and then uh, i guess a year or so later when we had a band he was he introduced me to Martin Parker he had recommended Martin Parker to come play of course because uh, Martin was a great drummer. That band was Reno Kling, Kevin Welch, and Martin Parker and me. That was a really good band, except for the singer, and that was me. But uh, <laughs> he was very nice to us. Uh, but no, not a whole lot of interaction. Yeah, you know, I just, you know, he actually. This is uh, I've never heard it, but he cut the Gambler as a and, and it never came out or anything, but. The idea of J.J. Kale making it all the way through a song uh, with that many words is strikes me as funny, but just the honor that he would like it enough to give it a, a, a go is, uh, is amazing. What a hero. What a great person to, to learn from by watching. I got to watch all that stuff. I signed with ASCAP. I named Merlin Littlefield. I visited ASCAP and BMI. BMI offered me $50 a sign. ASCAP said, well, I'm not going to insult you by offering money, but here's how we collect money. I liked Merlin. And this record of mine came out. So Bobby uh, Bear cut the gambler. He was switching record labels, so he didn't put it out as a single, but it, was, it made his album. And at the same time, Hugh Moffat got a record deal on Mercury, and he put it out. And uh, Conway Twitty's son, Charlie Tango, put it out on Gusto Records. It's odd if you see a Schlitz Gusto connection there. It's just yeah, it's just the planet's out of out of whack. <laughs> and we had three songs charted, three records of it charted at the same time. And a Bobby Bear cut. And mine went to like number 61, I think it was the 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 one that went farthest. And I'm still working at Vanderbilt. Okay? And I've heard myself <laughs> sing on the radio. So, okay, Merlin takes me over to meet a guy who comes out from Capitol Records, the a guy. They signed me to Capitol, and that guy's name was Chuck Flood, and Chuck Flood is still my business partner, manager, everything, to this day. Uh, we've never had a contract. We don't need a contract, but yeah, we've, we've been partners for, oh, these, since 1978, 70, right? At the turn of 70, 78. And then, so the song came and went away. That was probably 77. Yeah, I wrote the song in 76. I was 23 years old. And it took a couple years to get it cut for all this stuff to start happening. And still, yeah, I'm still not writing very much. I still haven't figured it out at all. Merlin kept pitching the song and pitching the song and pitching the song. And one day he cuts me. He cuts me. He calls me. And he says, Larry Butler cut your song last night on Johnny Cash. And the next morning he calls me, I had, you know, the, the, the not a cell phone, but the phone in the wall. This is at 10 o'clock after I've been gone home to my little apartment on Fairfax and gone to sleep and at 10 o'clock. He calls me and says, Larry Butler cut your song last night on Kenny Rogers. And I don't know which one cut it first, but like, this is a great way to wake up. And I'm still working at Vanderbilt. About that time I decided, okay, I'm done. I'm going to give it six months and find out what, what happens. And they both came out, uh, Johnny Cash's version was reviewed in Time magazine. He had changed the first line from uh, "On a warm summer's evening" to about 20 years ago. I'm going like, "Okay, you know, oh, so they changed words on you." <laughs> okay, all right. And Kenny had sung it, had changed a couple words, but and he moved the chorus up a verse. Uh, and he, he up-tempoed it, but that was about, you know, where we
0: were. Was that him tempo. or the producer that did that?
1: I would think um from knowing him as little as I know him, and Larry, I would think it'd be both. But that Kenny would have had great input into that. He was a he's a strong personality. Uh, probably the most fortunate thing that happened for me, as far as that record went, was the album cover. They did an amazing album cover of uh, putting Kenny in that gambler outfit, sitting at a table, and putting it side one cut one. And he would already was breaking big. You know, this is after Lucille. Uh, and you know, which I will to hearken to Lucille as anything that I did later with Randy Travis's neo traditional country. I think that I all went back to Lucille, I think that's the one that people should point to, and then see how Randy picked that up and Kyle Lenning and and went with On the Other Hand in 1982 and those songs. But so Kenny had the record and. He really kicked down the door for me. All all credit and, to do to Kenny and Larry Butler and and Berlin Littlefield and those guys and that kicked down the door, which allowed me the time to learn how to write songs. I had to learn how to, to live within the 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 process and to for the rest of my life, as long as I remember, to do that. To write Whatever the hell I wanted to write, and that if, if everybody passed on it, that's okay if it's what I want to write. I'm, I'm okay with that. you know it was a different road from from what what Tom House went to. It's a different road from what so many of the people that, that whose names have already dropped here uh, who have gone on to wonderful things in their lives and their careers, uh, sometimes musical, sometimes in other fields. Uh, what a wonderful time to be in the middle of a creative group of people when you, you look back and go like, yeah, I hung out with David Olney. You know, smarter person as there is in, in the universe and is talented and as hardworking. And there but for a couple of, you know, incidents. I mean, I think his songs are every bit as good as anybody's in the world, much less mine. Uh, and what a great master of elocution. I mean, when he
0: starts ten dollar words, uh, hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I got it on sale,
0: yeah it had been used there's this moment where you know the gambler's this huge song, and uh it's everybody's listening to it and loving it, and I have to believe that the way you're treated around Nashville has to have changed a little bit, maybe every door is open, maybe some pressure. Is stressed upon you, maybe not. I'm just curious what it's like to be in Nashville after something like that has occurred.
1: No, I think that it, for a good bit of time, it was I was a one-hit wonder, or, con, or considered to be. It was considered to be a, a, an anomaly, and it, that was just too weird a song. I mean, it did not follow any. Uh, it didn't have. It didn't have a love interest in it. It was way too long. The the uh, melody is really linear. And that was the reason it was a hit. It was different. I guess. Also, you know it was a hit because Kenny Rogers sang it. Great. He did a great job of singing it. He made it into a sing along. As he says, he'll take depressing subjects and turn them into happy melodies. And, you know, he did that. Uh so credit where credit is due. Did people treat me differently? I don't know. I I I I'm I think I'm an introvert, um, in that uh I can obviously talk about this stuff for a while but then i'll go home and build a pillow fort and the pillow fort is where i really do enjoy being i would rather be sitting where you're sitting now and interviewing you than being right here uh i'll you know i can relate to that i'm doing this because uh i'm a fan Mm -hmm. and i wanted to find out how you did this because i love i mean i love the <laughs> that happens however you edit that I mean that, that's that's like okay is that i trademarked did you op- do that
0: I have to open a window and you wait do until the car comes by and then we'll sit that's a Doppler talk. effect thing
1: <laughs> that's the Otis Doppler effect that's right. Okay,
0: I think you should put a trademark on that sucker. I have to wet the streets down first, though. But
1: I'm looking here at your at, your, at, at, at the uh, Thanks for giving a Damn Studios, and I see there are plenty of opportunities for a, a pillow fort here. Yes, I think I can. I think I can. I'm just going to go sleep over there in the corner next to Russell. Is that all
0: right? I usually end up in a fetal position somewhere around here. Just kind of, <laughs> think it's going to be okay, isn't it? I think it's going to be okay. Let's
1: go to Mitchell's.
0: That sounds good. All, all right. Thank you, man. Thanks, Otis. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Don for coming over to my living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Don at donschlitz.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of Amy's records can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it comes out. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, Please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.